Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, It's good to see uh, so many uh, faces that are returning. Welcome back from college, Jackson and Hannah. Please do uh, say welcome back to them. They're on fall break. Uh, I think they're returning relatively soon. Uh, maybe possibly even today. So uh, be sure to uh, catch up with them after the service. Um, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, we'll be in verses 8 to 22. As Dave said a couple of weeks back when he preached the entirety of chapter 2, we're really flying through 1 Peter. Uh, in this, I think he said he could have had like four, five, six sermons on that chapter alone. In this chapter, in just the section that I have, most of the commentaries have three, maybe four chapters. So we have uh, a lot to go through today. So we'll be reading the passage as we go along to save time. I'll be speaking very quickly as well. So if you miss something, please, we, we've got, we're recording this. Please go back and, and listen uh, so that you can, you can get that. But first... We need to pray. Father God, there is much before us uh, as we come to your word, and there is much in our lives that will distract us from uh, your word. I pray that as we come uh, to uh, this passage, that you would uh, show us the tension that we have in our lives, the ways in which uh, we uh, are stressed. And Lord, I ask that you would show us uh, the wonder of your gospel as we live in and work through that tension. Lord, help us uh, see your son, see your gospel in a new light this morning. Uh, Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as you can see, Eli and Tom are still up there because uh, we're going to be beginning and ending in tension. So I've asked Eli and Tom to give us a little bit of mood music. So go ahead. Okay, great. So, I hope you feel that tension, that musical tension that just, it just makes you feel awful, right? You just want to run up there and just finish the chord. No! (laughs) Okay, (laughs) thanks guys. Um, It's kind of awful, right, to have that lack of resolution. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard or that sort of uncomfortable ache between your shoulder blades when things are just unsettled. And even as I was thinking about maybe having them do that, I could just feel the tension thinking about what they would play. And that's tension, right? We live with and in tension all over the place in our lives. Home projects that are unresolved, family situations that seem to take forever to resolve, um, sometimes just waiting for things to heal right? Broken legs, torn Achilles tendons for me, right? Like, it's just a lot of tension. Maybe there's tension at work between you and your coworkers as you compete for a promotion, or just the simple tension of a big project coming to a head. And we hate that tension, don't we? With a passion, because it's wildly uncomfortable. So we do everything in our power to resolve it. 
uh, just like you might want to go up to the piano. But that tension that you're feeling right now, as you think about all the different sort of flashpoints in your life, that tension is just a small taste of what the original recipients of First Peter were feeling. Remember, these folks were facing a lot of tension in their lives. Many of them were fleeing intense persecution, and they might have even lost close family members um, as they fled. Many of them are living uh, in hiding in a land that is foreign to them. And some of the readers are the people that have to welcome these sojourners and exiles into the area, perhaps fearing that these outsiders, who are also brothers and sisters in Christ at the same time, they're perhaps fearing that they will bring the persecution upon them and their families. You've got, to care, you've got care for your fellow Christians on the one hand and fear that their mere presence will bring the worst for your own family on the other. Talk about tension, right? And Peter knows this tension. He's lived it in the early days after Pentecost, which we heard about from Reverend Chinovan just a couple of weeks back. Peter knows that these folks are dying for resolution, for some kind of a relief from the circumstances and tension in their lives. And so 1 Peter is meant to be an encouragement to people living in tension. But what does he say to him? And so, you know, we've been flying through 1 Peter, and so I want to take some time to set the context of what we get here in 1 Peter chapter 3. So way back in chapter 1, he pointed to their living hope in Christ Jesus, who has given them an inheritance that is imperishable. But that living hope means that those who have been called to that hope, who have that hope, are called to be different, to be different and uh, holy and transformed by that hope. That holiness is explored in chapter 2, as we see Peter calling them to center that hope around the chosen and precious cornerstone that is Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it mean to center your life around the cornerstone that is Jesus? Well, we talked about that a little bit the last couple of weeks. Peter's systematically working his way through our relationships at work. That's the slaves interacting with unbelievers, uh, unbelieving masters at the end of chapter 2. At home, that's the wives uh, interacting with unbelieving husbands that we talked about last week and vice versa. And then in general, in their sort of wider lives, and that's our passage today. In each set of relationships, there's a tremendous amount of tension between a holy people and an unholy surrounding culture. But that tension doesn't always just sort of stay out there, out there, but it sometimes comes in as well. If we looked at the book of Ephesians, there's tension within the church between the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There's tensions even here among us. There are some folks, if you looked around, that you're, you might not like super much. Right? There's tension there. People that are just different from you, hold different views. And so tension is really everywhere for Christians. But how are we to respond to this tension? to living in a world that is sinful, fallen, and broken? How does Christ being our cornerstone impact the way that we approach living in these difficult tensions? 
And that's what we get here in our passage this morning. And so let's dive right into verses 8 and 9, which call us to show mercy and grace. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Before we even get to a point about relationships, Peter calls his readers to a difficult perspective considering their circumstances. So think about their, think, while thinking about their circumstances, unity of mind is going to be difficult. Remember, these folks are spread out all over the place. So unity might be somewhat difficult because they're just not together. But unity of mind might also only be possible if everyone's dedicated to living out of a hope in Christ. But sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and humility are not going to be easy. Why? Because these folks have been through traumatic events. That, and folks that, are, that have been through traumatic events tend to not be bastions of love, care, sympathy, and humility. Why? Because they've simply got too much on their plate to give anything to sort of anyone else. There's a sort of shell-shocked withdrawal that happens when things go sideways. It's all too much, and so you focus on yourself. We saw that with the pandemic even. Friend groups contracted, and the stress on everyone was very real, right? It got to be harder to sort of care about others simply because you had so many stressors on your own plate. And yet these characteristics point to a perspective and posture toward the world that calls to mind what we heard last fall in our series on Philippians. Be of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2. In short, Peter's asking them to have Christ's perspective on things, which leads us into verse 9, which is almost like a punch in the face for those that are reading it. Peter is calling these persecuted Christians who are enduring unimaginable suffering by our standards to show mercy and grace. Remember, mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that's hard when everything is going well, when we've got an abundance, when it doesn't cost us too much to give. It's easier to give grace and mercy when you have so much that it doesn't hurt. But these folks that are receiving this letter, they don't have much. In fact, they're having things taken away from them. And so they're in a hard places, and yet they're called to show grace and mercy. And so showing mercy to your enemies, to your persecutors, to the folks grievously hurting the ones that you love, that's almost impossibly hard. For instance, if someone came up, and, uh, came up to my daughter and intentionally and maliciously broke her arm, we would have a big problem. My first instinct would not be mercy and grace. My first instinct would be to put that person in the ground. Those feelings of anger, rage, and retribution, while natural and maybe even just in some ways, 
aren't what I'm called to. I'm being called to show mercy. It's a mercy that reaches out and seeks to care for them, which brings us to grace. And so it's not, not only am I not supposed to take vengeance and retribution to bring justice to my enemies, but I'm to seek their good and to bless them. But why? Because we're called to that kind of life that we might be blessed. And what is that calling? Our calling is laid out in chapter 2, verse 9. That we are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. It's no surprise that we're called to show mercy and grace because we are Christ's people. We're called to be different, to be separate and holy. Sojourners and exiles, as chapter 2, verse 11 puts it. We aren't of this worldly kingdom, but belong body and soul to the kingdom of Christ. And so if we're to be called to be God's people, it means that we need to be like him, no surprise. That we need to be like Jesus. And so we are, to be doing about, we are to be about doing what is good and righteous. Look with me at verses 10 through 12, which are a quote from Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to seat. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Peter puts this both, both positively and negatively. First, that we are to stop speaking evil and deceit, which draws us back actually to chapter 2, verse 1, when we are called to put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The malice which is spoken of in chapter 2, verse 1, points us to the reason why we are to put away speaking evil and deceit. It's not only because it's just straight evil, right? Speaking evil is just evil, so you should probably not do evil. But because it also sets us against our fellow man, which brings us into conflict, which destroys the goodness of our days and leaves us only, leaves us only with destruction. And all of that comes from malice, which is a setting of ourselves against our neighbors. And so the opposite of doing this is to do good to seek peace and to pursue it. That posture that we talked about in verse 8 means that we're not to be about ourselves. That's the humble mind, sympathy, tenderness, and brotherly love coming out in a practical way. That we are to seek good. We're not thinking about ourselves, but rather simply going after what is good and right, not for ourselves, but for others. And this might be a point where we look for any caveats to this directive to do good? What about what is just, right? If people are doing evil to me, shouldn't I punish them for the evil that has done to them? Shouldn't we pursue justice and punish them? But to that, Peter points us to verse 12, which essentially says that God stands with those who are righteous and against those who do evil. Just because someone has done evil against you doesn't give you a free pass to do evil against them to get, quote-unquote, even, right? All you've done is sin yourself. But not only that, there are verses that point us 
to how we should handle evil done to us. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Basically, the Bible says it's not your job to get even. That's God's job. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 20. Blessed, and I hope, hopefully as I read this, you'll hear the similarities. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with them who rejo- rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. Uh, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap coals on his head, burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so there isn't much in the way of wiggle room around this. We are to look to the one who sees us. God knows where you live. God knows what you're going through, and God knows the deepest recesses of even your heart. And he listens to your prayers. Think about that. The God of the universe knows where you live. He knows every part of your experience, and he hears your prayers. That should be immense comfort to us. He's right there with you in the midst of your suffering, even and especially the unjust suffering that you endure. And he's not just present with you. He's not just sort of some bystander that just observes. But he's actively for you and against those who are evil. And so the question for us as we go through the reviling and evil of this world isn't so much how do we make things right, but rather, to whom do we look to make things right? Unfortunately, we focus on verse 12 too much. The main section of this section, the main point of this section is to be about good, which leads to good days. Being righteous usually works out for us, right? Being righteous usually works out for us. Why? Because we're not making messes by being sinful, So normally, it's enough to simply be about righteousness and good, which we should be about anyways. But the Christians he's writing to were not living in normal case scenarios, right? They weren't living in a normal situation. So how do you deal with suffering for doing good? That's verses 13 to 17. Read with me. Now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good." If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Now, it's important to note that most of the suffering that we endure on a daily basis doesn't fall into this category. It's extremely rare for us to suffer for doing good, 
That's the whole point of verse 13. Who goes after the do-gooder, right? Who actually harms the person that is actively and zealously trying to help you? Who does that? But that's the point of of this section. And remember, this talks about suffering for righteousness' sake. This doesn't talk about people going after you because you're different racially, socioeconomically, or just because your personality rubs them the wrong way. This is strictly because you're zealous for doing good and being righteous. That's the reason why they're coming after you. That you're so good that they can't take it, and so they come after you. This is the kind of suffering that comes about simply because people hate seeing what they ought to be. They hate being confronted with an example that throws their own evil into stark relief. This is the kind of suffering that comes because you're trying to have integrity and care for others. This is the kind of suffering that comes when you stand up against powerful bullies for the vulnerable. In short, this is the kind of suffering that we don't usually encounter. Our our suffering usually is of a general kind that comes from living in a world that is sinful and embraces sinfulness, or our suffering that comes comes as a result of our own sinfulness. We usually suffer because there's sin in the world and because we're kind of jerks when we come down to it. That's why we suffer. We don't usually suffer because we're just paragons of righteousness. But let's say you are a paragon of righteousness. Let's say you're showing grace and mercy and trying to be like God by being zealous for doing good and being righteous. And then suffering comes upon you. What then? Well, Peter thinks that our suffering, if we're like that, that our suffering is a blessing. That we should have no fear of those who are hurting us and to be, not to be troubled. What? How is suffering a blessing? And the things that they're doing to hurt us are real. And so we have every reason to be afraid and troubled. For instance, if I was a pastor in China and the Chinese secret police break in and take me away from my wife and kids, um, I'm going to have a hard time thinking that that's a blessing, right? I'm definitely going to be afraid and probably just a little bit troubled. But then again, I'm an American Christian with very little experience with active persecution, specifically for my faith. If we look at the response of our brothers and sisters in Christ in China, verse 14, where we don't fear and that we're not troubled and that we consider it a blessing, that's exactly how they respond. And why? Why the different responses between me and them? It's because they have grounded themselves in in the gospel in such a way that they understand that suffering for righteousness' sake is a blessing in the same way that Peter the apostles rejoiced for being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. You see, they have taken the answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, to heart, to be the foundation of their life. And so the question, question one is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from, the power of, from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That last bit, to be heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him has no caveats, no exceptions. It's not, oh, I'll be heartily willing to live for him if everything goes the way that I expect it to go. Or I'll be heartily willing to live for him if it's all easy. There are no exceptions. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is where our defense of the gospel comes in. We often view this verse in terms of apologetics, having answers for the myriad of issues and questions that people have with the Bible and gospel and Christians and with Jesus and all of that. But I think that verse 15 is far more foundational. You see, our defense is of the reason for the hope that we have. It's not thinking about addressing scientific, moral, or ethical questions. Rather, it's focused squarely on the holiness of God and Jesus, which is addressed in chapter 2, which is our living hope. What sets God and Jesus apart? What is the living hope that we have, and why do we have that hope? Well, those questions bring us to verses 18 to 22, which are some of the most distracting verses in the whole Bible. Listen closely. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, why why do I call these some of the most distracting verses in the whole Bible? Well, because there's that strange part about Jesus preaching or proclaiming to spirits in prison and Noah's deliverance and what's that about. And then, uh, you know, most commentators, when they read those verses and try to talk about those verses, they say that I have a minority position because there are no majority positions, which is a long way of saying nobody really knows and it's not particularly clear. I tend to gravitate toward the position that Jesus is preaching to spirits that have been restrained due to their sin during Noah's day, and they're non-human spirits. And so he's not going there to save them, but to rather to proclaim what is true to them. But again, there's a lot of folks that would disagree with that. Probably going to be a mystery until we talk to the Lord about it in heaven. Like, what's this about? And then there's that part about baptism saving. And that's the problem right there. We tend to stop right at baptism now saves you. And then there's nothing that comes after that. But of course, there's four whole clauses that come after. There's even a whole verse and a half that comes after. And that's where we get how to address this. 
The best way to really read these verses is this way. Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Christ Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with all angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This corresponds to Noah's salvation and not about physical cleanliness, but about the Lord giving us a good conscience instead of our sinful bad one. That's how we ought to read it. And English being the crazy thing that it is, you can read it that way. But the main point doesn't have anything to do with Jesus preaching to spirits in prison or baptism salvific efficacy. Rather, the main point is right there in verse 18, which makes sense since we tend to get the main idea at the beginning or the end of paragraphs in Greek while we get the main idea in Hebrew in the middle. So what does verse 18 point to? Well, something very familiar. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, have, being put to death in the flesh, but also made alive in the spirit. The words for and also make this sentence clearly connect to all that has come before. Everything that we've said about masters and servants in, cha- in chapter 2, about wives and husbands at the beginning of chapter 3, about being sojourners and exiles, about having a living hope that is imperishable, all of it rests on Jesus' death and resurrection. No surprise there. Do you see the wonderful way that Peter ties everything together? Jesus has done all of this already for us. He is our trailblazer, the one who has gone before us to lead the way. We are called to give grace and mercy. Well, Jesus did that for the unrighteous. That's us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When evil was perpetrated against him, he blessed beyond what we could possibly imagine. And we are called to be like the one we're united to. We are called to live like God, being loving and zealous for righteousness and doing good. Jesus did that in spades. His whole life was about establishing righteousness and doing good for those who didn't deserve it. Think about what it must have been like for Jesus to live with sinners about the fact that he was called a friend of sinners, which meant that he didn't hang out with the upright folks who had learned to hide their sin in a socially acceptable way. No, he hung out with folks that, were, that sinned openly, flagrantly, deeply, and more than that, they already knew it. It is to those folks that he went to heal, to feed, to teach, to love, to transform, and to ultimately die for them. And we're called to suffer for doing good. The whole reason why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the scribes detested Jesus was because he was so good. He was about godliness, holiness, faithfulness, and truth. He wasn't about the politics. He wasn't about the righteous crusades of the day that sought justice against the evil-doing Romans. And he wasn't about the fame of leadership. No, he was about serving others. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The stark contrast between the religious leaders and Jesus made it plain who was doing God's will. And so they crucified him. But Jesus overcomes all of that in his resurrection, which is his vindication. And that resurrection life is a living hope that we have. Now, friends, Jesus isn't just the example of what it means to live a life of holiness, righteousness, and service. 
He isn't just the trailblazer, right? He isn't just our living hope. But Jesus is our cornerstone of all that we are because everything is really truly about him. He gives us that perspective that we talk about we talked about in verse 8. He gives us a secure foundation to cling to in the storm of suffering, to know how to stand with him, and really everything flows out of him, for him, and to him. The Christian life is about becoming more like him and having a greater appreciation for what he means to us. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the whole point of the Christian life, that we would know him better. And so think about this. If you live your life according to our passage this morning, you're going to live like Jesus. You're going to embody him to a watching and sometimes or, ho- or often hostile world. And as you suffer, as Christ suffered, what do you gain? You gain a perspective on what it was like to love you, to love me. As I live like Jesus and suffer like Jesus, I learn what it was like to suffer for people like me to suffer as a righteous person for the unrighteous. I'm the hateful mocker who calls out from the crowd, crucify him because he is so, so good. That's me. That's you. That's all the people around us. And as you learn to love them and suffer well, as you learn to show them grace and mercy when everything in your being cries out, for revenge. You learn what it was like for Jesus to love you. This is how your suffering is a blessing. It's a blessing in that you get an intimate picture of that glorious grace that was shown to you. You get a firsthand experience of what Jesus went through to save you. And that right there is how we live in gospel tension with those around us. That right there is encouragement to people who live under the constant threat of persecution. That right there is how those people lean into the tension just as Christ did to love well, to do good, and to proclaim Christ, not just through their words, but through their very lives, through the joy in the midst of suffering, through their living hope that never perishes. Peter's encouragement isn't that Jesus will come back someday and set all things right. Peter's encouragement isn't that good will prevail and the persecution will stop. Peter's encouragement is to embrace suffering so that you can, so that you can embrace Christ. Let me say that one more time. Peter's answer to suffering isn't that it's going to go away. Peter's answer isn't even that good will ultimately win. Peter's encouragement to embrace suffering is so that you can embrace Christ at the same time. For us this morning, living in 2020 in Loudoun County, living in the midst of a pandemic that's still ravaging lives, living in a political battleground for both political office and within our schools, living in a culture that disagrees with a whole lot of what we think is good, right, and true, tension is everywhere. And we hate it. We do everything in our power to get away from it. Our natural inclination is to resolve tension, to argue and try to change people's minds because, of course, that works all the time. To resolve the tension by maybe simply cutting people out of your lives. 
to resolve the tension by dismissing people as lost causes or to denigrate them so much in our hearts that we can have just contempt for them and dismiss them. But that's not the life we were called to. We're called to live like Christ, to lean into tension, to be so zealous for righteousness and, to, and doing good to everyone, friend and enemy alike, that we might suffer like he did for us. So where do you feel the tension in your life? Do you seek to escape from that uncomfortable place? Or do you rejoice that to this you were called? To step in to the tension, to show mercy and grace, to embody Christ, and in the process, meet him and taste and see that he is good. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you, Lord, I confess that I am not like this, that I'm not living the way that I'm called to live, that I shrink from tension, that I do what is comfortable, that I try to just make everything easy. But Lord, I pray that you would give me and everyone in this room eyes to see the wonder and blessing of suffering for righteousness' sake. Lord, make us righteous. Make us good. Make us be about righteousness and doing good to the point that we show Jesus to those around us. And Lord, would we suffer for being so good like Jesus? Lord, we ask for that kind of suffering that we might know firsthand what it was like to love us, that we might know you more and understand the gospel on a personal, visceral, tangible level, that we might experience the wonder of your gospel and of your grace. Lord, help us step in to tension, for Lord, that is not what we tend to do. Give us strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.